This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This is the Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Rachel Heng read her story, Before the Valley, from the June 7, 2021 issue of the magazine. Heng is the author of the novel Suicide Club, which was a national bestseller in Singapore and has been translated into 10 languages. A new novel, The Great Reclamation, will be published next year. Now here's Rachel Heng. Before the valley. The candles were already lit when Huibin arrived. Her mistake. She'd missed the announcement at breakfast saying today's party would take place in the big hall instead of in the rec room. What was wrong with the rec room, she mentally complained while taking her place in the crowd. Birthday celebrations were always in the rec room. But catching a glimpse of Potbelly Kerpal in his wheelchair, Huibin softened. Likely the change had been made because Kerpal was so popular and more residents than usual were expected to attend. Typically, birthdays were local affairs. Huibin was in Ward 4, one of the 14-bed wards, which was a bad thing every day of the year except her birthday, when it meant that she could count on at least 13 other people showing up to a party. A relief, since Huibin had never been good at making friends, even before. Before was the shorthand residents used for their lives prior to Sunrise Valley. Before wasn't talked about often, it felt unseemly somehow, self-indulgent, to dwell on one's past life. What did it matter, for example, that Cynthia from Ward 8 had been an actress who'd starred in the horror films that used to be made here in Singapore back in the 60s? Or that Hasmi from Ward 12 had been a lawyer and was even rumoured to have owned his own firm? They were all here now, Sunrise Valley residents, one and the same. Sure, Cynthia was in a two-bedder with a garden view, and Hasmi had one of the few coveted and very expensive single wards. They still had to come to the linoleum-tiled dining room each morning for the same soggy kaya toast and watered-down coffee. Still took their seats each evening in front of the television, which blared alternately English, Chinese, Malay, and Tamil-language soaps. Wards aside, were the residents not all in the same boat? The details might differ. Mild dementia, children too busy to visit, loss of leg function, no living relatives. But the crux of the matter was always the same. You were stuck in Sunrise Valley regardless, whether it was paid for by your dwindling pension, the government, or an erstwhile child. 
Of course, Cynthia and Hasmi would disagree. Those in the smaller wards were most likely to let slip details of their befores. Nothing too obvious, just a hint here, an old business card there, because they couldn't bear being lumped in with everyone else. Huibin understood. Once, she too would have bristled at the thought of sitting among strangers in the dining room that smelled like a hospital, eating from childish plastic bowls. But you got used to it. And if you didn't, well, some didn't. A scuffle broke out to Huibin's left, then a wail. Shh, shh. Hazel, never mind. Let her have it. Shh. Okay, okay. She'll give it back to you. The aide fussed and soothed, but Hazel's cries only grew louder. The nature of the offence. Her neighbour had snatched the greying stuffed rabbit that Hazel carried everywhere. Bao bao, she called it. One of the few words she still spoke. Baby. Even with the rabbit restored to her, Hazel continued to storm, flailing at her neighbor's face as if she were a nightmare to be banished. Huibin averted her gaze. Seeing Hazel like this made something open up inside her, a frightening abyss she had to carefully ignore or risk falling into. Just a year ago, Hazel had sat with them in the common dining hall, carrying on entire conversations, eating on her own, and complaining loudly about the food. Curry as thin as my diarrhea, Huibin remembered her saying once, when they were seated at the same table. Back then, Hazel's eyes had been bright and impish, her wispy white hair neatly pulled back with a shiny red clip. You got diarrhea? Hazel had asked. Huibin shook her head. Lucky you. Hazel had had mild dementia then. Many of them did, and still lived happily with everyone else. But six months later, she had disappeared from the dining room. Hi, D, the others whispered, shaking their heads, and then they spoke of Hazel no more. No one liked to talk about the high-dependency residents who lived on the third floor. Stroke victims, the paralyzed or severely incapacitated, the self-harming, and, on rare occasions, those who had lost all hope and simply refused to eat or move. There was a special ward in High D for those with advanced dementia, that was where Hazel lived now. Heidi residents were always in wheelchairs and wore large, pillowy gloves that looked like oven mitts. With her teeth, Hazel now tore off a glove and flung it in the aide's face. Take her out, please, Mrs. Tan called from the front of the room, where the candles for Kelpao were slowly burning down. Mrs. Tan spoke in what Huibin called her weekend voice, the warm, syrupy tone she assumed on Saturdays and Sundays when Sunrise Valley teemed with families and visitors. Her usual voice was rigid and cold, often crackling with impatience. One understood, Huibin thought. As the floor manager responsible for some 20 wards and more than 100 residents, Mrs. Tan could not be saying please and thank you in her weekend voice all the time, or nothing would ever get done. But today was Wednesday. Could it be? Huibin craned her neck to see the front of the room. Sure enough, a tall, slender young woman stood beside Kerpal's wheelchair, one hand on his shoulder. Okay, Dadaji, we sing now? The woman smiled, and the smile lit up her lovely face. Her throat was like an egret's, long and graceful and smooth. She put one hand to it now. Indian girls, when pretty, always so pretty. Akao, from Ward 5, said, he spoke in Hokkien. Pervert, 
Huibin hissed back. Say only, say also cannot. Shh. Kerpal also always say, Satvir this, Satvir that, Satvir so smart, Satvir the most pretty. Are you Satvir's grandfather? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Akao and Huibin were drowned out by the singing, a dissonant chorus of residents' voices slipping in and out of sync. Mrs. Tan led the song in English, and the residents sang along in whatever version they knew. Akao began singing in Mandarin, Huibin rather proudly in English. She liked any chance to practice. Huibin was born the youngest child of seven, at a time when her older siblings were already working, and thus, despite her father's having been a garanguni, rag and bone man, and her mother a laundry woman, she'd been afforded the rare luxury of school. After attending the convent school up to Form 6, and even learning a few words of French, she'd gone on to take a typing class and got a job as a secretary at a small shipping company. Eventually, she had to leave, of course, once she'd married and had her children. But how many of the women of Sunrise Valley could say that they'd once read Le Petit Prince to a room full of elegant Brits at the Raffles Hotel? In hindsight, Huibin saw how shamelessly she'd been used by the convent nuns to raise funds for the school, trotted out at charity galas and school fairs like a prize pig. Never would she have allowed her own child to be paraded in this way. And yet, those golden evenings filled with the scent of cut roses withering in tropical heat, the gloved hands of wealthy women cupping her chin, the applause and admiration, they would stay with her always. Happy birthday to Kerpal, happy birthday to you. The room broke out into cheers, cameras flashed. Kerpal, however, was covering his face. Don't take photo, you said no photo, he growled. Silence fell. Kerpal was never tense, known for his dirty jokes and the endless supply of M&Ms he doled out from his pockets, even to the diabetics. He was usually the life of any party, the one to brighten so many of their gloomy afternoons. Everyone had a Kerpal story. Huibin herself had met him on her very first day at Sunrise Valley. Her daughter had just left. It was tea time. Huibin's few belongings, a Bible, eyeglasses, and some laminated photos, had been tucked away in the cabinet by her bed. She still remembered the terrible loneliness of walking into that dining hall for the first time meeting the roomy eyes that looked up at her from their cartons of Milo and chrysanthemum tea. Everyone was so old, so, so old. And yet, they looked like children, with their paper bibs and dribbling mouths and meaningless gurgles. Oh, it was horrifying. Surely she did not look like that. Surely she did not eat like that, sit like that. She had to call her daughter, she thought, in a panic. She could not stay here. And then came the awful realization. Even if she did call Doreen, all her daughter would say was what she always said. There's no other option. It's just not safe. What if you fall again? Huibin would take falling again over this dining hall, these poor specimens hunched in their chairs, napping in their tea. Then a loud wolf whistle broke her spiral. Who's the new hottie? It was said with such a plum that, to Huibin's surprise, she began to laugh. The wolf whistler beckoned to the empty seat next to him. As soon as she sat down, Huibin began to feel better. Kerpal had a way of looking at you, 
eyes half shut, challenging tilt in the chin, humorous twist to the mouth, as if to say, now just look at what we have here. Something about him made you sit up in your seat and want to prove yourself. In a place where people came to die, you felt, for lack of a better word, alive. Along with his ribald cheer, Kerpal gave off an aura of no-nonsense pragmatism, a fatalistic acceptance of the situation such as it was. He could calm any Heidi resident, lift the spirits of any frightened newcomer. In the months that followed, Huibin learned that Kerpal welcomed every new face, man or woman, hearing or otherwise, upright or wheelchair-bound, with the loudest wolf whistle he could muster. So it made them all uneasy to see Kerpal cover his face now, snapping at his beautiful granddaughter, who had come all this way on a Wednesday afternoon, had perhaps even taken time off work to visit him. Not many residents had granddaughters who would do such a thing, buy helium balloons, hire a professional photographer, all just for a birthday, when birthdays were a dime a dozen around here. Dadaji, it's okay, I stand next to you, Satvia said. Finally, Kerpal acquiesced. But even Satvia's dazzling smile could not compensate for the stony look he directed at the camera. Flash, flash, flash. The photographer took out a small electronic device, one that looked like a Walkman, and pointed it at Kerpal's closed mouth. Satvia chatted away brightly. Huibin caught fragments of from where she was sitting. My dadaji is a man with a rare gift. My dadaji has a true work ethic. My dadaji would take me to the beach, and so on. If it had been anyone else's granddaughter, Huibin might have found the way the girl was going on a little exaggerated, even mildly irritating. But it was natural to feel enthusiastic about a grandfather like Kerpal. Reporter, Akao said, gesturing towards the photographer, from the Singapore Tribune. Don't talk nonsense, Huibin said. Not nonsense. I heard from Cynthia, arranged by his granddaughter, big interview. Heard from Cynthia means true? At that moment, cake was distributed, and Huibin didn't press further. They tucked in, rainbow sprinkles sticking to the corner of Akao's mouth, Huibin's fingers growing oily from the grease that seeped through her paper plate. Strawberry icing and sponge dissolved in a cloying paste on her tongue, as Korean pop music, the aide's favourite, streamed from the radio. The residents chewed quietly. At the front of the room, Satvia was still speaking animatedly into the reporter's tape recorder. Her elegant arm was slung protectively around Kerpal, who said nothing and refused to take his eyes off his lap, where a slice of strawberry cake sat untouched on its plate. Breakfast the next morning was nasi lemak, Huibin's favourite. The fried chicken wings might be soggy and the peanuts low in salt, but the rice itself was soft and fragrant with the rich scent of coconut milk. And the blachan was always good, extra spicy and not too sweet. Huibin carefully arranged each bite just how she liked it. A spoonful of rice, a morsel of egg napped with blachan, a piece of chicken. As she began to eat, Kerpal rolled up in his wheelchair. Good, he said. Mind if I join you? She nodded. Huibin was in the habit of coming early to meals so as to avoid the awkward sting of solitude. Kerpal, on the other hand, typically arrived late, surrounded by his rotating posse. She'd never seen him come to breakfast at this time before. If she was Aka or Cynthia, she might have questioned him about it. But being herself, she just went on making neat, delicious mouthfuls of nasi lemak. 
Kerpal didn't speak either. He ate slowly, his eyes fixed on the empty space between their trays. There they sat, fluorescent lights flickering overhead, the smell of fried chicken mingling with that of the lemony antiseptic cleaner used to wipe down the tables. The longer the silence went on, the less Huibin was able to enjoy her nasi lemak. The chicken seemed oilier than usual, the rice overcooked. Did you have a good birthday? she said at last. Kapal looked up. Over the whites of his eyes crept a fine spiderweb of pink blood vessels. He seemed not to be thinking of his birthday at all. He had, Huibin thought with a shiver, the air of a defeated man. Lovely, he said at last. More silence. Did you like the cake? A faint note of desperation entered her voice. Suddenly, she thought of an afternoon many years ago, Doreen coming home from school to find her sitting motionless at the dining table, while Lisa, barely six months old then, screamed in the next room. Children have an uncanny instinct for their parents' pain, Huibin remembered thinking as she watched Doreen's face change. The girl didn't know yet that her father had left, in the most humiliatingly cliched of ways, for a woman he kept up in Johor Bahru didn't yet know that Huibin feared not being able to find a job, didn't yet know that they might lose the flat in which they lived. But Doreen took one look at her mother and seemed, instantly, to acquire a maturity she had not had that morning. She poured her mother a glass of water, setting it down on the table before her with such care that it broke Huibin's heart. Then she went to calm the baby. Soon the flat was quiet again. Huibin took a sip of water and felt that she might go on. Yes, Kerpal said. It was delicious. It took Huibin a moment to realize that he was answering her question about the cake. The silence that fell again was unbearable. Were their roles reversed, were she burdened by some private grief, Kerpal would surely have known how to comfort her. Your granddaughter is very beautiful, she said, and so filial, sweet of her to come yesterday. Kerpal didn't answer but instead cupped the bottom half of his face with his hands. His knuckles were enormous, as twisted and shiny as oiled walnuts. His fingernails, impeccably clean, made small white smiles against his skin. She's still working at Procter & Gamble? Young people these days work so hard. My Lisa, she does advertising in New York. So long hours doesn't even pay well. Doreen also, every day, work until 8 o'clock, no time to eat dinner. She's still single, you know, 48 years old. I worry, does she want to be alone forever? But you know how they are. As Kerpal remained silent, Huibin continued to spout meaningless chatter, even though she knew that she was somehow saying the wrong thing, that she was making it all worse, was turning the blade of some invisible knife between his ribs. Oi, Kerpal. It was Akal, shuffling in excitedly on his walker. Gratefully, Huibin stopped mid-sentence. In his armpit, Akal gripped a newspaper. No doubt it would be damp and a little smelly. Still, she was relieved for his presence, even when he spread the newspaper out on the table in front of them and it was dark with sweat stains. Look! Akal jabbed a finger at the page repeatedly. Wah! Famous, are you? There they were, Kerpal and Satvia, he in his wheelchair, she leaning protectively over his shoulder. Around them were the colourful balloons she'd brought, on a table in the background was the cream cake studded with slices of strawberry. But it wasn't the balloons or the cake or even Kerpal 
that Huibin was looking at. It was the words, those strange, incomprehensible words marching across the top of the photograph, above Satvia's smiling face and her long, cascading hair, printed as simply as if they formed any ordinary headline. Retired hangman celebrates 90th birthday. Beneath it, in smaller font, former state executioner was known for his affable nature. What does it say? Akar asks in Hokkien. What does it say? Attracted by his loud voice, some of his wardmates had come over with their trays of nasilamat. They crowded around the newspaper, pointing and exclaiming, Why never interview me? One asked in Cantonese. Wah, Kapal, famous like Cynthia, you also movie star? Another said in Malay. What? Akal spoke slowly, in English now, enunciating each word. What does it say? They were all staring at Huibin, mouths hanging open like hungry, slobbering dogs. Kerpal, too, raised his heavy-lidded eyes to meet hers. She tried to see it in his face, the man who, for decades, had made a living taking the lives of others. She stared at his large-knuckled hands that lay open on the table, palms as smooth as the inside of a seashell, from which she had so often accepted M&Ms and high-fives. He saw her looking, Slowly, he brought his hands together, as if to pray. Go on, Huibin, Kapal said. He spoke gently, in English, as intimately as if they were husband and wife. Tell them what it says. Some weeks later, Doreen took Huibin out for the day. The aides insisted on pushing her to Doreen's car in a wheelchair. You know it's all for show, right? Huibin said as soon as the car door was closed. They let me walk around any old house when you're not here. I'm sure that's not true, her daughter replied primly. If that's true, then why am I paying them so much? Not that much, Huibin thought. She was in a 14-bed ward, after all. But if she said that, Doreen would only start complaining about Lisa living it up in New York with no thought for her mother and her responsibilities. Where do you want to go? Huibin shrugged. Doreen drove them to the nearest mall, but because it was Saturday... The underground car park was choked with crawling vehicles looking for a space and ambling families trying to remember where they had parked. Doreen and Huibin went around in slow, frustrating circles for almost half an hour. The air conditioning in the car was broken and something rattled in the engine each time Doreen accelerated. You should get that fixed. Where I got money? When it finally conks, I'll just sell it for junk and take the MRT like everyone else. Huibin pinched her nose. Doreen knew very well that her mother couldn't go on the MRT. The escalators went too fast. Their steps were too steep. The train doors that opened and shut didn't allow enough time. These day trips would end too, then. Finally, they found an empty space. Doreen backed the car into it with jerky, aggressive turns. Huibin's daughter had always been tightly wound, but she seemed to be getting worse of late. Huibin wondered about her life. Was she not lonely? Didn't she want a family of her own? Though in truth, Huibin knew very well the reason for Doreen's solitude. After her father vanished, she'd built her walls carefully, painstakingly, as only a child knew how, so that no errant gap would let in the light of pain. And now here she was, living on her own, working days and nights and often weekends, so busy she had time to see no one, not even her own mother. But Huibin didn't actually know that. 
Possibly, Doreen kept strings of lovers, held dinner parties with her school friends, was a regular social butterfly. Perhaps she had a husband, a child even, an entire life kept secret, like the one her father had once had with his second family across the causeway. His blood ran in her veins. Just because Huibin had always taken Doreen at her word didn't mean it was true. They made their way to Toastbox in the basement of the mall. A long line snaked from the counter, and it seemed as though the parking situation would repeat itself. Kopi o kao siutai, right? Want any toast? Doreen said, joining the line. Huibin shook her head and went off with her walker to find them a seat. She hovered between two tables, each occupied by a couple who had finished eating, but continued to sit silently, scrolling on their phones. Finally, one of the women brusquely tapped her husband on the elbow, gathered their shopping bags and left. Huibin took a seat. Her shoulders hurt. The cafe was jammed with strollers and screaming babies, toddlers pressing their cheeks to the tiled floor, glossy paper bags filled with shoes and clothes blocking the aisles. The stool Huibin sat on was wobbly and had no back. She found herself missing the plastic chairs in Sunrise Valley's dining room, with their cushioned seats and sturdy, curved spines. Nevertheless, when Doreen arrived with the drinks and toast, even though she said she didn't want toast, Huibin started on her usual refrain. Work very busy? Busy, yes. My boss just quit, so they're getting me to do all his work. It's a nightmare. What? Promotion? No. Doreen clicked her tongue impatiently. That's not how it works. You don't just get promoted because... Never mind. They drank their coffee. Doreen picked at the kaya toast. It was bothersome how she kept breaking off small pieces and getting the sticky green paste all over her fingers instead of just picking up the whole thing and eating it properly. But Huibin swallowed the admonishment on the tip of her tongue. Her daughter was not 14 anymore. So busy, got time to cook dinner every night? You know I usually just stop out. A new coffee shop opened across the road. The Hainanese curry rice, not bad. Next time I'll bring for you. Ayah, girl, so unhealthy. How can you every day tapao? Huibin paused, weighed the next words carefully. If Ma's at home, Ma can cook soup for you. Steamed fish like you like. It's fine. I try to make congee myself since it's easy, and I eat a lot of fruit. Eating hawker food every day is not good, even if you eat fruit. Doreen stopped picking at the toast. The corners of her mouth were dark with coffee. Huibin thought of the nun at her convent school who'd given out waxy packets of chocolate milk every day. Drink up and show me those chocolate smiles, she'd say, and Huibin would gulp down the powdery calcium supplement that she learned later in life tasted nothing like real milk, but had found so delicious anyway. Don't start with this now. A warning in Doreen's voice. But Huibin had to go on. She saw her daughter so rarely, she had to give it her best shot. I get around okay with the walker now. My bedroom's just sitting empty, gathering dust. I would be very careful. You just have to leave the food and the kitchen things where I can reach. And the physio sessions? And your medication? I only do physio once a week now that my leg is better. You could take me. It's not more work than coming to visit. And I can take my medication myself. You just have to set it out each morning with some water. It's only the bottle lids I can't manage with my fingers. And the labels are too small to read. And the commode shower? Huibin fell silent. The plastic wheelchair with its open seat. 
the aide's rubber-gloved hand sliding between the cheeks of her buttocks. She, sitting, naked, placid as a cow. No, she could not ask Doreen to do that. They finished their drinks. Doreen left half a piece of toast behind, and Huibin did not have the heart to say, as she usually did, that one ought not to waste good food. Look, ma. Just then, the woman at the next table let out a grating shriek. Doreen leaped to her feet, sending her stool clattering to the floor. Something large and dark scurried under the table. Others jumped up too. Some whipped out their phones and pointed them towards the ground. Get up, ma, get up. It was easy enough for Doreen to say. Huibin struggled to get to her feet, determined not to stumble or fall. She was strong, stronger than her daughter or anyone else would imagine. Everyone was still screaming, filming, threatening to call the health and sanitation board or the police. Someone yelled, this place should be shut down, such disgusting pests coming straight from the kitchen. So on and so forth. Young people had never lived with rats. The creature was under Huibin's chair now. Slowly she got up, and now she was standing, now she took hold of her walker. Doreen was gesturing frantically, her face so scrunched in fear it was laughable. Despite all of Doreen's brusqueness, all the power she held over Huibin, she was, at her core, a little girl afraid of a rodent. It occurred to Huibin that she was wearing sandals, and it wouldn't be good for the rat to bite her. Yet... If she did get some disease and died that way, it would still be a better death than a slow decline in Sunrise Valley's high-dependency ward. Doreen was shouting for her to move. What's wrong with you, Ma? Move, move! All this noise over a little rat. Then she felt it, the rodent's weight on her left foot, its sharp claws digging into her flesh as it moved, the feeling of warm, filthy fur on her skin. Screams, more screams. Not from her, though, She had known rats in the dilapidated row house she lived in as a girl, had been woken up by the sound of their teeth chewing through thick gunny sacks to get to the rice, but never had one touched her. It was a sickening feeling. Then a quick, awful scuttling of the claws, and it was gone, a flash of black dashing out into the glitzy fluorescent lights of the mall. Are you okay? Doreen said, grasping her mother's arm protectively. Looking into her daughter's face, Huibin seemed to see her at every age. A little girl arranging coloured pencils on the cold, tiled floor. A teenager briefly venturing into rebellion, short skirt, permed hair. A young woman in her first job, boxy jacket with shoulder pads, a likeness to her walk, as if all the world awaited, as if all the world were at her feet. And now, here she was, middle-aged, overworked, childless, alone, to think that she'd imagined Doreen capable of saving her. Moving out of Sunrise Valley would take her no further from death. What would happen to the rat? Huibin recalled the neighbor boy she'd played marbles with as a girl, who she'd thought had terrible aim but realized, years later, had been holding back on purpose to draw out the game. That boy was long dead. Found with blood seeping from his nose and gums, bruises pooling in the crooks of his knees. For most families on their block, there were weeks when food ran short and all a child might have to eat was some slices of sweet potato in watery congee. It was in such a week that the neighbor boy, empty stomach gnawing like an animal trying to get out of his body, had chanced upon a box of rat poison in the kitchen and mistaken it for food. 
Take me home, Huibin said to her daughter. Doreen, pale as a baby chick, drove carefully this time. Now Huibin was the one who sat with people at mealtimes, and Kerpal, who was alone. Satvia had not come back to visit after his birthday. Huibin thought of her often, sitting in some air-conditioned conference room with men whose paunches strained against their shirts, who stared at her long neck as she went, line by line, through whatever contract was under discussion. Beautiful Satvia, intelligent Satvia, well-meaning Satvia, whose dadaji had once taken her to the beach. What emotion had moved her to contact the newspaper, take the day off, buy the balloons, request that Mrs. Tan hold the celebration in the big hall and not the rec room? What misguided pity, secret pride, warped vanity had made her chatter away to the reporter about Kerpal's past, when he himself would say nothing? All that mattered for Satvia was the outside world, the world that would read the article in the Singapore Tribune the next morning and say, how touching, how brave. What sacrifices a man like this must have made for our nation? Impossible for her to imagine was the world of Sunrise Valley, where her mild, jovial grandfather who had taken her to the beach actually had friends. Friends he cared for, friends with internal lives and moral compasses and hypocrisies of their own. Friends who had to sit next to him at lunch and think about what he had done. He had not intentionally kept it from them, Kerpal had explained, No one talked about their life from before. That this was true did nothing to stop the residents of Sunrise Valley from peeling away from him, one by one. Nothing this exciting had happened since Madame Seat had been caught in bed with a male aide. I just feel like we had a right to know, Cynthia said, every time the topic was discussed, which was every occasion that Kerbal was not there. I just feel like we had a right to know. Low voice, lips pursed, she lived for the performance. Know what, Huibin wanted to ask. What was there to know, and why should they have a right to anything, at all? But she kept her mouth shut. She had, after all, read the English headlines out loud to Akao and his crew that very first morning, aware the entire time of Kerpal's soft, unblinking eyes on her. The Singapore Tribune article was passed over and over, Kerpal's unique ability to put prisoners at ease had often moved them to donate their organs before the end. To stay healthy, he cracked a raw egg into his coffee each morning. A young prison officer, he had started out as an assistant to Mr. Gloucester, a British hangman in the colonial prison services, well-versed in the table of drops. Huibin was often enlisted to translate some English word or another, and there was no doubt that she was flattered by the attention. She was never alone now. The others had grown comfortable with her at last, and these days, even when the conversations had nothing to do with Kerpal, they included her out of habit. No one, really, was against the death penalty itself. No use feeling sorry for them, Hasmi, the lawyer, said. I've met these drug dealers. Trust me, you don't want them near your kids. Here, Cynthia would shudder dramatically, wrap her bony fingers around her shoulders in a girlish manner that a long time ago might have been charming. Someone must do la, Akau said matter-of-factly. Otherwise, how to keep Singapore safe? But, ayo, something wrong with him, do for so many years, so many people. The issue, then, was not the act of hanging itself, but the consistency and equanimity with which Kerpal had seemingly carried on for so long. And how did Huibin feel about it? 
If there was one thing she had learned in her 82 years of life, it was that she could grow accustomed to anything, anything at all. It was still some months before Kerpal would begin to wake up with long scratches down the sides of his arms, and no memory of how they had appeared. Some months before the aides would recommend mitts for what they called his night fidgets. A year before a bed jacket would be imposed. For anyone other than Kerpal, mitts and jacket would come much sooner. But Kerpal would wheedle the staff, charm Mrs Tan, tease the aides. Once the residents would no longer have anything to do with him, he would turn his attention to his minders, direct all the cheer his nature could muster toward them. Being human, they would not be immune. But they were professionals. And eventually, as Kerpal continued to rake his fingernails into the thin flesh of his arms night after night, they would be left with no option but to move him to high D. For now, though, Kerpal still sat in the dining room in his wheelchair, feeding himself, his limbs unencumbered. What was it that made Huibin rise from a table? Cynthia interrupted mid-sentence, shooting her look of annoyance, take her tray and cross the room to where Kerpal sat. There was no one thing she could point to. Later, she would say that Kerpal was taking on the faded look that Hazel had had before her precipitous decline. Curry as thin as my diarrhea. The weight of a rat's claws on her bare foot. He cracked a raw egg into his coffee each morning. When her car finally conked out, Doreen would take the MRT. My dada G is a man with a rare gift. The neighbor boy lying pale with blood trickling from his nose. No one would save her. Huibin sat down. Kerpal looked at her with his soft, soft eyes. When she spoke, it was as if to an old friend, someone she had played marbles with in the sticky caress of the monsoon morning, on a street that once held so many lives and families and children, but had long since ceased to exist. Tell me, she said, what it's like to die. That was Rachel Heng reading her story Before the Valley. This is her first story in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Ben Oakry reads The Rescue Will Begin in Its Own Time by Franz Kafka. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.